Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, A World of Sound by Olaf Stapleton. This was uh, comes to us through Science Fiction Monthly, November 1974. I had a scan of the issue and uh, found new no, Olaf Stapleton. Oh my God! Um, it's only it only been published once prior in a magazine, and I dug it dug up the name. I couldn't find the issue called I think it was Hopcot uh, in 1937. Oh, sorry, Hotchpotch, um, and I don't know. It must be some sort of UK magazine, but it doesn't tell me, like, what month or, you know, <laughs> if it lasted more than a month, what, what it is. So, I don't know the original. Hmm? But it was 37. 1937, yeah. I don't know yeah. the original context, but <clears throat> here, um, there's a beautiful introduction by the editor um, that makes a connection that I... I actually read that last, and so I want to read that first because I'm like, oh yeah, and um, I was, I I just feel really connected to Olaf Stapleton, um, since I read his a couple of his novels. Uh, but I want to read this uh, editorial introduction. Uh, but one thing is certain: man himself, at the very least, is music—a brave theme that makes m- music also of its vast accomp- accompaniment. It's Matrix of Storms and Stars. And that, that's in quotes. And then it says, Olaf Stapleton ends his great masterpiece, The Last and First Men, with this statement. And it is the same theme that runs through this short story. A world of sound is something of a collector's item since it was. it is the first short story Stapleton ever wrote. He wrote only two and has only appeared in print once before in 1937. So why has this been buried for so long? I don't know. Um, that's a, lo- a lot of years between 1937 and 1974, and it's had a couple subsequent releases, but I don't get the sense that everybody loves Olaf Stapleton the way I do. So let me, uh, can I make some comments about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think I've read... Um, I'm trying to think of it. I think I've read six of his novels. Um, Last and First Men, which was 1930, um, was surprisingly enough, because it's a highly philosophical novel, I'll describe in a moment, um, was actually a bestseller. And um, Starmaker, which is 1937, the same year as this story, um, was also a bestseller. Hard to believe. Uh, the novels, both of them, are amazingly philosophical. I have used, uh, for years, I used Starmaker in my science fiction class. At the end of every semester, and I often had as many as 300, 350 students per, per semester, um, I would ask people to, uh, to rate the the books that we had read, you know, which was your favorite, which was your least favorite. Uh, what about for recommending to a kid sibling? What about recommending to your parents and so on? Every year, this is consistent over a couple of decades. These novels by Stapledon that have, well, Starmaker has zero dialogue. Mm-hmm. 
has only one named character. The whole thing is a philosophical exploration by the uh, narrator as he starts off on a hillside in England and then winds up projecting himself psychically, or he thinks he's projecting himself, going psychically through universe upon universe and era upon era for billions of years um, until he confronts the maker of the universes himself, star maker, um, about consistently this novel is chosen by my students as the worst book, (laughs) the worst book of the semester. Okay. If you had them vote, but we're talking about 13 novels and consistently 10% of the class say it is far and away the best novel (laughs) of the semester. Okay. So there's something really powerful and unusual about Stapledon. He takes language and he makes a story entirely out of the possibility of reimagining how things go together. Mm-hmm. It's deeply philosophical. And in this particular story, it has to do with the nature of language and synesthesia and uh, how we do or don't approach others. Um, it's, a, it's a very philosophical story, mostly. Um, so I think I think that um, that opening that you read, it, it puts staple. It says, well, this is this guy. This is the masterpiece. Well, I think most Stapleton scholars don't think that Last and First Men is the masterpiece, but rather um, Star, Star Maker. But um, what is very important here for that opening that you read, that passage, I'm going to read it again in a second, is in fact drawn from the end of Last and First Men. Now, Last and First Men is a, a novel that has so-called 18 men that is, 18 modulations of what is fundamentally Homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. For example, the fifth men, if I recall correctly, become infected by Martians who are a colonial telepathic entity um, and little tiny, like a, a cloud of midges. And they wind up infiltrating the minds of human beings. And so we get a whole new kind of Homo sapiens. A whole new kind of man where now we're all telepathically interconnected. Um, There are 18 different ones as you go through a billion years or however long it takes. Um, And then, in fact, the the last men. Right. It turns out that this this insight is given to one of the first men that is an Englishman of 1930, um, he gets it. He hears all this because he is given this vision by one of the last men who has is now out on Neptune and is reaching back through time to let this guy see what's going on. And the reason he's doing it is because those last men, the 18th men, 18 being the canonical number for life, by the way, in Jewish numerology, Um, the last men have realized they are the last men. The sun is going to go supernova and that will be that. And let me read again what you just 
had this editor quoting. Mm -hmm. He writes, this is him quoting from the last page of Last and First Men. But one thing is certain, man himself at the very least is music. A brave theme that makes music also of its vast accompaniment, its matrix of storms and stars. Now that sounds very hopeful. I mean, it's thin aesthetic. It's it's seeing human beings as music, which is what this story, A World of Sound, does. So I see why the editor picked it. But it's very, very hopeful. Mm-hmm. That is not how the book ends. Here is the way the book really ends. But one thing is certain. Man himself, at the very least, is music. A brave theme that makes music also of its vast accompaniment, its matrix of storms and stars. Man himself, in his degree, is eternally a beauty in the eternal form of things. It is very good to have been man, and so we may go forward together with laughter in our hearts and peace, thankful for the past and for our own courage. For we shall make, after all, a fair conclusion to this brief music that is man. That's the message that the first man who becomes the narrator brings to our world, having gained it from the last man on Neptune eons from now. We're limited. We're over. That sort of elegiac view that Stapleton is able to take in those two great novels, The Last and First Men and uh, Starmaker, it puts everything in cosmic perspective. And he does it in part by writing a gorgeous language that allows us to utterly change how we look at things. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I think, is is why Stapledon can be so powerful for a minority of readers and with his utter lack of dialogue and completely philosophical interests and be just absolutely tedious (laughs) for the majority of readers. Yeah. Now this story, I don't want to, I think this story uses some of the techniques that Stapledon uses. In fact, uses them quite Thoroughly, I mean, his his rhetorical techniques. But I think what the editor has done here is tried to make it uplifting rather than elegiac. And the story itself, in fact, is something else entirely. Uh, if you want, I can give a sense of the story mm-hmm. or. OK. It's short, so it's certainly worth people going to the website and, and reading it. It's, it's fascinating how he changes, how we see yeah, things. It's only a couple pages long, uh, 12, uh, 12 and a half minutes to read. And, um, definitely worth reading. I, I, I will, I will say the other thing is, um, before you summarize this is, I don't think this is like a classic science fiction masterpiece. Like, uh, I don't know the 9 billion names of God because it's theme is so small. <laughs> Nine billion names of God has the biggest theme. This has a very small theme, and at least in one sense. Um, and it's kind of a joke, it, at least that it can be interpreted that way. On the other hand, I think what it does do is it tackles a phenomenon so uh, common and per- pervasive 
throughout you know everybody's life um and and for me one that i've found baffling for years which is i, I don't really get music i don't understand the appeal <laughs> and stuff like that um and and he manages to transform it into uh, i guess the way poetry does into a a metaphor um and and be, because its theme is so small it's just about this uh, uh, this idea um it can't be as great a story but for what it is it is absolutely perfect and great if you know if if this makes any sense it does yeah it does i think it has uh, i think it's about more than music however um i i maybe i'm giving it's it about a perception story. absolutely yeah well i think it's also about language um uh, let, let me read the beginning of mm-hmm. it, and then we'll have some th- concrete stuff to talk about. Sounds good. The room was overcrowded and stuffy. The music seemed to have no intelligible form. It was a mere jungle of noise. Now one instrument and now another blared out half a tune, but every one of these abortive musical creatures was killed before it had found its legs. Some other and hostile beast fell upon it and devoured it where the whole jungle suffocated it. The strain of following this struggle was ex- for existence wearied me. I closed my eyes and must have fallen asleep, for suddenly I woke with a start, or it seemed to wake. Something queer had happened. The music was still going on, but I was paralyzed. I could not open my eyes. I could not shout for help. I could not move my body nor feel it. I had no body. Something had happened to the music, too, and to my hearing. But what? The tissue of sounds seemed to have become incomparably more voluminous and involved. I am not musical. But suddenly I realized that this music had overflowed, so to speak, into all the intervals between the normal semitones, that it was using not merely quarter tones, but centitones and millitones with an effect that would surely have been a torture to the normal ear, To me, in my changed state, it gave a sense of richness, solidity, and vitality quite lacking in ordinary music. This queer music, moreover, had another source of wealth. It reached up and down over scores of octaves beyond the range of normal hearing, yet I could hear it. As I listened, I grew surprisingly accustomed to this new jargon. I found myself easily distinguishing all sorts of coherent musical forms in this world of sound. At that point, when he uses the term jargon, what this narrator is letting us know is that we are now in a specialized language. And that's what gives us access to what he calls this world of sound. And the world of sound is the name of the story. Mm -hmm. And so I would suggest that what's fundamental here is the capacity of Stapledon to write in such a way that what we should think as a referent for music becomes a referent for the whole world. Um, I found myself recognizing that these active sound figures were alive, even intelligent In this mad world, which was coming to seem to me quite homely, patterns not of color and shape, as I would recognize you, for example, and you, me, um, patterns not of color and shape, but of sound, 
form the perceptible bodies of living things. So what Stapleton is doing is getting us to substitute a vocabulary that we associate with one thing for a whole other realm, but he is taking it literally in that realm. It's mm-hmm. not supposedly metaphoric anymore. It's the letter metaphoric made literal, which as, as Freud suggests in his uh, essay called The Uncanny, that makes the fantastic. This is fantastic. And in this fantastic world, our narrator discovers that there are two dimensions you can move along. You can move on what he calls the level dimension, which basically means things getting closer and further away. Um, But it's described in a way to make us understand it's louder or less loud. When it's sufficiently far away, it can't be heard. When it's right next to you, it's, it's roaring. And then there's the vertical dimension going up and down the different octaves. Now, you know, most, I mean, a piano goes, what is it, three and a half octaves or something? Um, I don't know. I'm not expert on this. But human Me neither. Beings, yeah. But, but an octave, by definition, is a doubling of frequency. So, you know, maybe human beings can hear a five octave range or something like that. But to go scores of octaves up and down, well, as the narrator says, it's beyond the range of normal human hearing. But these two dimensions define what's going on. And in this two-dimensional world, um, he, the narrator, um, meets, he sees some other being coming near him. Sometimes beings just interpenetrate and pass through each other like waves on a pond. Um, But sometimes they bump against each other and they have their musical tentacles. And, uh, oh, you're stepping on my toe, he says, as one creature treads on him when he has this musical body. But he he sees this this female and he calls her a nymph. Um, And then he says he's attracted to her and he tries to go after her through the jungle. But uh, at a certain point in his pursuit of her, he calls her his companion. Now, clearly this is a dream landscape because mm-hmm. you don't turn from having first been spotted into somebody you think of as um, well-known without ever having any intervening relations with each other. He's never gotten to her, and yet she's suddenly become a companion. And it's important to recognize that we have this idea of it being a dream because we get to the end. May I read the end? Mm-hmm. Okay, this is where you said it might be a joke, I think. Mm-hmm. He, he's prevented from getting to this female music being because this brute being has gotten to him. He's growling and belching and so on. Its strident tentacles move beneath me that is lower on the octave scale, like the waving tops of trees beneath a man clinging to a cliff face. Still searching, it passed on beneath me. Such was my relief that I lost consciousness I'll remind us that he sort of fell asleep and then woke with a start or thought he did in the beginning. I lost consciousness for a moment and slipped several octaves down before I could recover myself. The movement revealed my position. The beast of prey returned and began clamoring awkwardly toward me. Altitude soon checked its progress 
but it reached me with one tentacle, one shrieking arpeggio. Desperately, I tried to withdraw myself further into the treble, but the monster's limb knit itself into the sound pattern of my flesh. Frantically struggling, I was dragged down, down into the suffocating bass. There, fangs and talons of sound tore me agonizingly limb from limb. Then suddenly I woke in the concert hall to a great confusion of scraping chairs. The audience was making ready to leave. Mm-hmm. I think, and, and you know, I, I will cease in just a moment. I think that this ending of, and then I woke up, yeah. is the same kind of cheap crap that you find in, oh, I'm so clever, says the eighth grader. I will write a story. You know, and the fact is, people do come upon this device and think they're really clever. That last line, I think, so deflates the value of this story that I can understand why it hasn't been reprinted. Yeah, I, I was thinking it might be a true story. <laughs> I'm I'm fascinated <laughs> by dreams. Um, you know, it's sort of a theme that, uh, that's why I love H.P. Lovecraft so much is he's just constantly obsessed with his own dreams and writing them down. And I, I do the same thing, although not to the extent he did, he did. Um, and when I first started reading this story, I didn't know what was going on exactly, but I did, there's a line in here that resonated with me. Uh, I, he says, I'm not a musical person, um, that, that totally describes me and, um, and yet, it's not that I'm unaware of the power of music. It's just I don't dwell upon it the way I, I see the, wor- the world around me dwelling upon music. Or at least they did. I, I don't know that people still do that, but maybe I'm just more sensitive, less sensitive to it now. In any case, um, I, I, I was immediately struck once I figured out, oh, it's this musical world is a jungle, and then he... He's assigning, well, or describing the world. It's basically a big simile, right? It, it, this was like this, and this was like that, and um, and then he's got a body, and he's moving about uh, up and down the scales and the harmonics and all that stuff. And I was like, this is Peter and the Wolf, right? Um, by Prokofiev, I think that's how you say the guy's name, uh, uh, Russian composer, right? Um, and uh, I, I just want to read the Wikipedia uh, a description of Prokofiev's explanation for uh, how that per- production goes, which is you go to a concert hall to hear, at least in, you would in 1937. Uh, this uh, this uh, Prokofiev's um, Peter and the Wolf came out in 36. Um, this is uh, the description from Wikipedia. Each character of this tale is represented by a corresponding instrument in the orchestra. The bird by a flute, the duck by an oboe, the cat by the clarinet, uh, playing staccato in a lower register. The grandfather by a bassoon, the wolf by the three horns, Peter by the string quartet, the shooting of the hunters by the kettle drums and the bass drums. Before an orchestral performance, it is desirable to show these instruments to the children and to play on them the according leitmotifs. Thereby, the children learn to distinguish the sonorities of the instruments during the performance of this tale. And it's always struck me um, interesting that when you you go to a concert and there are musicians playing, 
you don't actually need to have your eyes open. That's why record players, you know, could capture performances. Um, and indeed, that's what exactly what happens at the beginning of the story. He's sitting there, and he's actually describing everybody tuning their instruments, right? I thought, oh, that's clever, after I figured out what was going on. And then we proceed into him falling asleep, um, sort of being in this uncomfortable discord, and then making sense of it and sensing it in a in a deeper way than uh, he would if he his I, I guess his defenses were up. And then when he comes to the end, he's being torn apart. Um, it's uh, obviously it deviates quite a bit from Peter and the Wolf as a story, but not in the idea, I think. And and that was that was really interesting to me. So uh, I, this is what I'm saying. This is kind of a perfect story for what it's doing, because it literally is. It's a world of sound, right? It's not. It's not like a. Uh, you don't take it like a metaphor. He he's taking that metaphor and saying, let's imagine reality not as a three dimensional space with, um, you know. Uh, a gravitational body at the bottom and a, uh, an ocean of air above, but rather um, as a, a world of sound. <laughs> and yeah, at the end, he cuts it away, right? He pulls the, the rug out from under. But right, what's if, literally true is no longer true, right? But that's what happens when you wake up from a dream, right? What was, what was, literally true a moment ago is now nothing but a dream and so uh, when i say the word joke you know um i think it could be used disparagingly but on the other hand uh if it's if it's a reality then it's not so funny right if it really ha- had happened and i i i don't know the backstory of you know how this was written or anything like that <clears throat> But um, I think it's important, and I, I want to also talk about another. Uh, Before you yep. switch points, I, sure. I do want to. I, I want to thank you for uh, your description of Peter and the Wolf. Um, I did not realize their close coincidence in time, uh, Peter and the Wolf, and this story. Um, but uh, Peter and the Wolf is one of the most famous examples of what is called program music, mm-hmm. and that is precisely what we're told here. He said, when it occurred to me that I had fallen into a land of program music, I was momentarily disgusted. Why? Because here was a whole world that violated the true canons of musical art. Mm-hmm. Because it was trying to actually be known by how it reflected on the world outside. But mm-hmm. it's only momentarily disgusted by it because, in fact, he falls prey to it and winds up being a living part of the living program. It's as if he had entered right into um, the forest that Peter is out uh, out in in uh, in Peter and the Wolf. Mm-hmm. It's a, you've picked up something really good. Cool. Um, one of my other favorite writers, you know, um, I like Lovecraft, and I'd love me some Olaf Stapledon, though he didn't write that much. Um, is a guy named uh, Philip K. Dick. You may have heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of his stories that <clears throat> I really love. Uh, it's it's fun to read with students, and and then I give them a funny homework assignment after. Um, it's it's a story in a very brief series. It's only got two stories in it, called the Doc Labyrinth stories, and this one's called the Preserving Machine. 
and it's a it's Doc Labyrinth is this crazy friend of basically Philip K. Dick's, who's always inventing things, and he's crazy. He's you know professor of whatever, and <laughs> he's invent he's inventing crazy devices, and in this case, he he invents a machine to preserve music after the nuclear holocaust that's inevitably going to happen. Uh, it's uh, from June of 1953, so <laughs> it's not as big surprise uh, that he would have that on his mind. Um, but he's worried that all music will be destroyed, and so he's invented a machine that can f- uh, preserve music for uh, after the nuclear holocaust. And I'm just going to read a couple, a few paragraphs from this story because it, it's it's beautiful connection. I think there were many questions unanswered. The red light of the machine was glinting, even as he meditated. The process was over. The transformation had already taken place. He opened the door. Good Lord, he said. This is very odd. A bird, not an animal, stepped out. The Mozart bird was pretty, small, slender, with the flowing plumage of a peacock. It ran a little way across the room and then walked back to him, curious and friendly. Trembling, Doc Labyrinth bent down, his hand out. The Mozart bird came near. Then, all at once, it swooped up into the air. Amazing, he murmured. He coaxed the gentle bird uh, he coaxed the bird gently, patiently, and at last it fluttered down to him. Labyrinth stroked it for a long time, thinking, what would the rest be like? He could not guess. He carefully gathered up the Mozart bird and put it in a box. He was even more surprised the next day when the Beethoven beetle came out, stern and dignified. That was the beetle I saw myself, climbing along his red blanket, intent and withdrawn on some business of its own. After that came the Schubert animal. (laughs) The Schubert animal was silly, an adolescent sheep-like creature that ran this way and that, foolish and wanting to play. Labyrinth sat down right then and there and did some heavy thinking. Just what were survival factors? Was a flowing plume better than claws? Better than sharp teeth? Labyrinth was stumped. He had... He had expected an army of stout badger creatures equipped with claws and scales, digging and fighting, ready to gnaw and kick. Was he getting the right thing? Yet who could say what was good for survival? The dinosaurs had been well armed, but there were none of them left. In any case, the machine was built. It was too late to turn back now. So, (laughs) this is a, 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 a... What you do is you feed in sheet music... And it transforms it into genetics. <laughs> and then the genetics are represented. And it's Philip K. Dick's way of doing musical commentary, right? <laughs> Talking about what Brahms is like. I think, I think that uh, there, there are other works of the same period. Uh, for example, City by Clifford Simak, mm-hmm. where something gets term- fed into a machine and it comes out in a radically different form. Um, Maybe Desertion, which is one of the novellas, the long short stories that are mm-hmm. cobbled together for City, um, is the, the best known, where a man and his dog become suddenly new creatures that can live comfortably without any artificial aid on the surface of Jupiter. And it's a whole new world and they just never come back because it's so attractive to them. Um, both City and the Dick story that you're talking about have in common the notion that we can build the machine, give the machine rules, then the machine will do something and make changes. And we may be surprised by what those changes are. 
by what, what those machines produce. But but that's the nature of what goes on. And there's a mechanical intervention there. It's clearly science fiction. What Stapleton is doing is saying there's something going on in our minds. Mm-hmm. And to that extent, I, I mean, I think the comparison you make with Dick is is right and useful. But I think the contrast is also useful because as um, philosophical as both of these writers are, Dick seems to be caught up in the grinding wheels of logic, mm-hmm. whereas Stapledon seems forever trying to transcend them. And even though he recognizes that he can't, here he wakes up, it will have been, and this is a statement of faith, not in the machine, but just faith, it will have been a great thing to have been the brief music that was man. That's why when we talk about man, there's always more to say. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep.